Before we look into the word tonight, while I was while we were worshiping, I, I just I had a very very strong prophetic impression that I just want to share for some people that are in here tonight. But um, I really felt like I saw some of you that were in quicksand. At least you felt that way, and some of you had to literally drag yourself out of the quicksand of your circumstance and your despondency to even get in this room tonight. Am I getting close so far? But I saw some specific situations whereby which you feel like that you're right up, right up to your nose and you're not quite sure if you're going to drown. And part of it had to do with your money. And you've been putting it off as long as you possibly can. And you've been doing everything you can to kind of bounce a little bit to keep your nose above. But I want to just tell you tonight that God doesn't want you to live with your nose up against the quicksand. And he showed me something in this, that underneath your feet, if you will just walk, you're going to find some rocks underneath your feet. And God is going to give you the supernatural grace to walk out of the financial mire that you have found yourself in. For some of you, for some of you, it's debt. For some of you, you've been between employment for a while and you just haven't had the income to match the outgo. Some of you are in the type of, of, of business endeavors where it's a eat what you kill. In other words, you've got things in the pipeline, but for whatever reason, they haven't come to fruition. The, the commissions haven't come through. But God just says, if you, will, you, if you will just begin to walk out, just begin to walk forward. It talks about he is the rock. Amen? He is that rock. You're going to find the rock of promise underneath your feet, and God's going to bring you all the way out. So can we just take a moment and pray? Lord Jesus, tonight, let us hear something. God, for whatever place, God, that multiple people have found themselves in, be it circumstantially, financially, maybe something going on in their bodies, God, thank you that you have not called us into this place that we would just slowly drown. But that, God, there is not only a way through, there is a way all the way out that you are going to bring us into. And so tonight, God, I pray for every man and woman. If that's you, just leave your, let's just keep your eyes closed for a moment. Slip your hand up. So I, I know that you're hearing something and that you're responding well. So, Lord, you see the hands. So in the name of Jesus right now, God, come and do only that which you can do. By your Holy Spirit. God, that you are bringing the ground up underneath the feet of those who feel like the ground has gotten soft below them. Bring us out, and we will give you all the glory, all the honor that only you were due. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen and amen. All right. Thank you, and we're still glad you shower. We're talking about change. That the one constant around our life is what? Change. And we know the reality is most of us don't like change much. I don't know about you, but I go to, I go to the same restaurants and I do what? Order the? Same I mean, big menus, marvelous things. Some of you don't remember this, but I had set a goal some years ago of trying to eat my way through the entire menu at Cheesecake Factory. 
over the course of a 12-month period of time. Now, I failed at that. I did not get all the way through it because of this very phenomena is that rather than trying to leaf through all 87 pages of the menu at Cheesecake Factory, it's just easier for me just to go to the same thing every time. Sweetwater, one of my very favorite restaurants. Monterey salad with salmon instead of chicken. I do it every time, every time. Expectations, same thing. And by the way, we're not being paid to call out restaurants tonight. But same thing, I order, I mean, because why? I don't like change. It's amazing. My wife, on the other hand, she'll go to a restaurant. Oh, that looks interesting. As long as it's got bark and quinoa in it, she's on for it. She's good to go. But me, I'm not, I'm not really venturesome because I'm not one of these guys that embraces change well. And I think that I'm probably in the majority of most people that sit in this room. And yet as it involves walking with God, becoming less like you and more like him, guess what? The fine print on the contract, the four-point type, said, I hereby grant Jesus Christ and his agents on the earth, the Holy Spirit, to constantly be messing in my life. <laughs> I mean, we thought we were just signing up, you know, we'll be loved by God, not go to hell. This is good. I'll sign up for that. But we didn't see that print. That we were going to be in a state of constant change as long as we are breathing this air. Hmm. And yet, here we are. God's still messing with us. He's not finished with us. Aren't you glad of that? And yet, let me just say to you that what I just described to you is a big word called sanctification. I introduced this last week, and some of you went away like, too many words. Too many words. Sanctification is just that process of change that God brings us into. And we're in this series right now called The Power of Change and The Power to Change. Because there's something empowering when we allow God to do that thing that God is going to do anyway. Uh-oh. You mean I don't have to grant him permission? It'd be easier if you did. But God has other ways. We have ways. God has other ways of evoking change in our life. You may as well smile when you say that. Life, circumstances, children, marriage, the economy, just all of the circumstances around life. God, is, God, is, God will put, put us. You mean God would manipulate me in a heartbeat? to get you into exactly the place that he needs to get you to bring you to a place of that change. We looked at a number of things from an introductory perspective last week, but tonight I want to talk about comparison for a moment. Whether we admit it or not, much of our life is influenced by and even motivated by comparison. Now that's that's maybe an uncomfortable statement to make because most of us were like, no, nah, I'm not me. I'm my own man. I'm my own guy. Right. Right. Exactly. 
The reality is there's so many factors around our life, and we begin to, what, we begin to look around and compare. What do I do? What do I have or what do I not have? The forces of media and advertising, they're continually juxtaposing your life with the life of someone else. This is how advertising works, does it not? Is that everyone is driving this car, eating this food, wearing these clothes. I mean, and so we begin to juxtapose who we are, what we're doing with what someone else is telling us. And whether it's the advertising industry, whether it is the highlight reels of people's lives on social media, we begin to juxtapose our life with someone else's. We bring it into contrast and comparison. And how many of you know right there is when we begin to get in trouble? Uh-oh. And some of the outworking of that manifest in envy and strife and entitlement and all various types of dysfunction. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, We don't dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're not wise. So we shouldn't be comparing ourselves to us or to anybody else. And yet, where is the bar? Where is the standard? Where about which we should be attaining? I've told this story many times because it's just so painful. And that's the kind of person I am. But many years ago, my wife and I were in one of our moments of discussion. Pastor Brett calls it intense fellowship. I call it what it really is, a fight. Now, my wife and I established the rules of engagement of conflict early in our marriage. We didn't throw things. We didn't break things. We never threatened to leave. We didn't use the D word of divorce. I mean, we had the rules. I mean, like the, 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 the Geneva rules of warfare. We had our rules of how we would disagree. But that didn't mean we didn't disagree and do it passionately. And we were in a moment. Come on, husbands. A moment. There's a pregnant word. Moment. We were having a moment, Pastor Robert. And finally, my wife was bringing, bringing some truth to my life, as wives are prone to do with their imperfect husbands. And she was trying to help me raise the bar from the jerk that I was to some place that was less than jerk. And finally, in a moment of frustration, I said, what do you want from me? She said, I just want you to be like Jesus. I have the microphone. You just, I am relating the story the way that I need to relate it to fit into my sermon. So just, just let me live in my delusion. Just let me live in my delusion for a moment. You can fix it later. All right. They're called homiletics. I just want you, yes, some God. I just want you to be like Jesus. And I'm like, 
Wow. And you know, I, I, was, I was doing better before she made that statement. In my mind anyway, I was better than most husbands. Not that I had taken any surveys recently. But it begs the question, what or whom is the standard? What or whom are we reproducing after? Because if you can't define that, you certainly can't define discipleship. I read a survey years ago of the 10 most influential human beings to ever be on the planet. Jesus Christ came in number two. You know why? Simply because his disciples failed to accurately carry forth the message that he preached. Now, I think that's a little bit unfair because obviously the gospel got throughout the world and 11 knuckleheaded guys and, you know, kind of an early dysfunctional church managed to get it done. But nevertheless, who or what are we reproducing after? So I've entitled this message tonight, Compared to Whom? And I won't get through it, but I'll try to speak fast, which is hard for a southerner. <laughs> Last week, we looked at first priority, Matthew 6, 33. We quote it all the time. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and these other things will be given to you as well. We tend to kind of gloss over the first part of that phrase so we can quickly get to the second. But the operative words here are first. What does first mean? Priority. First, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. Seek is what believers do. Unbelievers do not seek God. This passage right here is something that's obviously reserved for believers. This is operative for you and for me. Because unbelievers are not seeking after God. They hide from him. They avoid him. Romans 3.10, as it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. And seeking the kingdom is but one of the manifestations of our instructions of prayer. Matthew 16, your kingdom what? Your kingdom come. There it is. God instructs us to pray for this. Unbelievers want all the benefits of God and the kingdom without God and king. Come on. We want all the benefits with all this stuff of having to acknowledge he's Lord, he's king, he's sovereign, he's above all. As far as that goes, worldly believers want exactly the same thing. We want all the benefits of the cross, we just don't want the cross. We want all the benefits of the kingdom, we just don't really want to have to abide by one, the rules of the kingdom, and the fact that the kingdom is headed by a holy, righteous, perfect king. Hmm. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, he said, I can't address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants. Titus 2, verses 11 through 13 goes on and says that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us. What teaches us? The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And while we wait for the blessed hope, here we go, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here is the goal. The goal is not all the stuff in between. The goal, the blessed hope, 
while we wait for something, we're waiting for someone to appear. And seeking kingdom, which implies seeking king. Hear me. I hear so many times teaching and preaching and proclamations and decreeing and declaring all of these things about the kingdom of God so many times devoid and apart from the king who is supposed to define the kingdom. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't have kingdom without king. It says, duh, tell me something. But they're Christians that try. And you can't have this kingdom and seek this king apart from seeking righteousness. Can't happen. The Greek word we looked at last week, hagiosmos, means the process of making holy. It's a process. Whereby which we're less of us and more of somebody else, God. Our definition, an ongoing process of change in the life of a disciple, whereby the holiness, nature, character, and power of Christ can be readily seen. The inworking and outworking of justification, whereby we become less like our old self and more like the new self being made into the image of Christ. It's a pretty good definition. Thank you, I wrote that. <laughs> but you can't separate righteousness and kingdom. Seek first kingdom and what? Righteousness. You can't have one without the other. Because a holy, righteous God and king is going to ultimately demand the same of those who are a part of his kingdom. And not just when we are made perfect and holy, that when we see him, we'll be like him. No, I'm talking about right now. Right now. He becomes the standard. Isaiah 40, verses 18 through 26. I'll just read part of the passage. Just jot the reference down. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. To whom will you compare me? Verse 25. Who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes. Look to the heavens. Who created all these? The psalmist writes in chapter 86. Among the gods, there is none like you. Among the gods. Not even talking about among the gods. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you. They'll bring glory to your name. So my wife jokingly said, I want you to be like Jesus. Problem is, she wasn't joking. And neither is God. He's the standard, the source of our comparison. You know, you can always find somebody worse than you are. Come on. You ever find the false comfort in finding, well, I ain't killed nobody. I'm not Adolf Hitler. I mean, you know, have you ever heard that kind of line of reasoning with people? I'm not so bad. Compared to serial killers, I'm not so bad. You know, I've never stepped out on my wife, at least not with another woman in person. 
I've never X Y. I mean, so we we can, but and you can always find somebody that's quote worse than you are, and so then we feel a little good, don't we? Come on, yeah, I, I feel good. I I hadn't murdered anybody today. I, I I haven't stolen anything today. Yeah, I feel I'm strong. I feel good. Keep keep that up. Gives us some sense of false comfort. Conversely, if you look, you can find a lot of folks who are a lot better than you are too. Problem is, we just don't look quite as hard for those people. The standard. Matthew chapter 5. These are the words of Jesus. Be perfect. Oh, thanks. Appreciate that. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, that's just wonderful. That's great. I'm done. Thank you. Goodbye. Matthew 5. Jesus came to fulfill the law on your behalf and my behalf. So we think, okay, great. All 620 some odd points. Good. Check, 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 check. I'm good. I'm right. I'm righteous. Or maybe we've got our list. It's only one problem. Jesus changed the requirements to make it motivationally impossible. Matthew 5 again, I tell you the truth, if you're angry with your brother, you've already killed him. If you even look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. You mean the outside stuff doesn't get it done anymore? No. I'm going all the way to motivation and I'm going to hold you accountable based on what's firing off in your heart. Oh my goodness, help me. And the requirement that's on you, listen, this makes it even more fun. It may not be the exact list that's on somebody else. Now hear me well. God has laid in certain, if you wish, systemic rules of life. Ten commandments, Jesus' instructions, biblical injunctions, all how to live. They're common to us. Yet, there's individual design and requirement in this. That what might be allowable in freedom for you, God says for you, wrong. Are you hearing me? Maybe it's something that you eat. Maybe it's something that you watch. Maybe for some people, it doesn't matter what the critics say. If it says R, they're not going in the theater. The rich young ruler had an encounter with this Jesus, and he said, what must I do? And he begins to list off, I've kept all these commandments since my youth. And I love the account in Mark because it adds a very critical statement for me. It says, and Jesus loved him. Critical. He loved him. And then he says, but one thing you lack. Sell all you have, give to the poor, then come follow me. And you know the rest of the story. Now, many times, folk that don't have any money like to quote that because it makes them feel better because they're broke. I'm getting in heaven. It's great. I'm not rich. I'm just going to slide right on in. I'm broke. It's good. See how hard it is for a rich man to be blessed? No, 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 no. Was this an admonition about the challenge of being wealthy? Yes. But there's more here. The question is, what is that one thing God's requiring uniquely of you? It may not be the same thing he's requiring of me. 
And the challenge comes many times when Christians try to superimpose the individual requirements God's placed on them on everybody else. So we go write a book and so we can put it in the grocery store on the, on the you know, Christian bookshelves and the you know, 10 steps to this and the 12 steps to this. I mean, God has certain requirements on my life that if I were to share with you, it wouldn't mean anything for your life because God is not requiring that specific thing of you. Are you with me here? This is where we have to find out individually what pleases the Lord. And true revelation, ladies and gentlemen, is the juxtaposition of the holiness of God and the lack thereof of you and me. You know, I'm convinced God doesn't give us the whole picture of this at one time. Because if the depth of our depravity were really to be shown to us, we would die. I am so convinced of that. And I'm not talking about the worst person you can imagine. I'm talking about the happy, Bible-toting, list-checking, praise Jesus believer you can imagine. I'm talking about the gap of where you are and where he is outside of what he's done to bridge that gap. The juxtaposition of those two things. I hear people talk about their encounters with God. It tickles me. I, I, just, I just have to laugh. Oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus came and we had a conversation. We sat down and we, you know, we shared some wine together and, and, and had some donuts and, and uh, we talked about football. No, you didn't. No, no, you didn't. I don't think so. You know, an angel showed up and we sat down and, you know, there, there, there's a place I've heard of, God is my witness, where you can go and pay money and they will teach you to play hide and seek with angels. That's how weird it is out there, ladies and gentlemen. And anybody that's had a real encounter with the angelic or had a theopony where God shows up, they're just happy to have lived through it. And quite frankly, they ain't going on TBN and writing books about it. They're real happy to be alive. But that juxtaposition, Isaiah, you know this, Isaiah 6, I saw God. But when he saw God, what happened? He says, woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm not going to survive this. For I'm a man of unclean lips, live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. And we know that God came and he did something. He put the coal on his lips. I believe there's a picture there of justification. You're okay. I'm cauterizing something. But real revelation comes when we see. Where are we really? Not how I compare myself to somebody in the pew or somebody at work or somebody that just flipped me off in traffic. But where am I in relationship to this perfect, holy, righteous God? It produces some things. Number one, it produces humility. Come on. You see, it examines and illuminates that which we're not and what we cannot be or change on our own. And we're not comfortable with that. And yet Paul was. 
2 Corinthians chapter 11, if I must boast, I'll boast about the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more about my weaknesses. Why? So that Christ's power may rest on me. It produces a certain humility that says, there's no way I can do this. Secondly, it puts the real weight of change really on God himself. Humility acknowledges what we aren't, but then it points to the real agent of that change. Romans chapter 8, just skimming through passages 7 through 17, the sinful man hostile to God, sinful mind rather, it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sin nature cannot please God. However, you are controlled not by the sin nature, but by the Spirit. Verse 13, if by the Spirit you put to death, look at that. If by the Spirit you put to death. And we'll talk about your participation in this in a future installment. But that's a mouthful right there. Yes, there's a part that you play. You activate You activate your volition. You allow your conscience to continually get sensitized to this holy God. And yet it says, but by the Spirit, there has to be some divine enablement that enables this to happen. Third, we're protected from condemnation. You see, it's in that gap of change between this place and this place where the enemy operates. Right here. Is in this moment of between, I know I'm not, yet I know I'm becoming. And this is where the enemy says, no, you're not. You'll never get there. Just head on back to where you came from. There's nothing for you over there. And that's when condemnation comes to us. But Paul writes again, Romans 7 and 8, thanks be to God. It says, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sin nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we get our comparison correct, it properly defines grace. Whereby which we realize it's God's favor, mercy, and enabling that makes the hope of change, the reality of change, even possible. Grace. And it's motivated by love. Our response to grace should always be one of reciprocal love. Never license. Never, I can because, but rather, I should because. Man, there's a a world of difference between those two statements. I can. Yeah, I guess you can. It's not specifically prohibited in Scripture. But you see, when we look at trying to do this to please God, it's... I should, because this would be pleasing to the Lord. It changes our complete our whole motivation. One is rights, legal, and license. The other is righteousness that finds its origins in love. Properly defined grace defines freedom as the freedom from and the freedom to. And lastly, when we have this figured out, it positions our testimony to the world. Beyond our words, our great apologetics, our invitations to wonderful meetings, it's our person that becomes the living epistle. 
2 Corinthians 3, and these are Paul's words. You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. 1 John 4.17 says, because in this world we are like him. You know, it says in 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, that we are ambassadors. An ambassador represents something. But could I submit to you that I believe it's more than just the fact that we are representing something. I believe it's the fact that we are something. I believe God wants us to move beyond just representing something from a distance and saying, you're that letter. You're that living epistle. You are Christ in you, the hope of glory, being lived out in this moment so that the world can see something that's completely unhindered, completely without the whole world funk and garb on it, but something really, really unique and different. Hmm. In the world... We are like him. You've heard me say this so many times. The world's not looking for an improved version of you. Something can't be both new and improved. It's one or the other. And in this process, God is making us new. Isn't that an amazing thing? How do you make something new? And yet, in the mystery of Christ, in this process of sanctification, of this mystery of the already but the not yet, the progressive. God is writing something on us that becomes, if you wish, again, it's our testimony to the world. It's how they see. Ladies and gentlemen, most people in this community, in this city, this state, in this nation will never darken the door of a church. You and I both know that. Most. Many will. Most won't. Therefore, if they're going to see what I'm talking about, guess what? they got to see it through you. They're not not going to get in here and hear Pastor Brett's pulpit or Pastor Robert lead worship. Step into this atmosphere as marvelous as as it is. Their contact is going to come through something different in you because you have submitted to this process of change, that you've not allowed your standard just to be the world or even the best people that you can find around your life. You've allowed the standard to be something that's heavenly, divine, God himself. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, help us tonight. Lord, increasingly to be more like you, less like us. Lord, we acknowledge tonight our absolute helplessness. God, the agony of Paul writing in Romans 6 and 7. We understand because we live there. We're made out of the same stuff. And yet tonight, God, thank you that you have stepped in and you're that agent of change in our life. If you're here tonight and you've never had a moment that you've stepped into the opportunity for that change, it begins with acknowledging Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He came He lived on this earth as a man with all the limitations of flesh, and yet he died the death you should have died. God raised him from the dead. 
as an atonement for your sin. For the release of the Holy Spirit, God himself that wants to live on the inside of you now. If you've never had that seminal moment that you can point to, this is it. Raise your hand. See that hand. Anybody else? Anybody else? If you raise your hand, just pray this prayer in your heart. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Help me. I know I've not lived a life that's pleasing to you, but God, move into my life. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. Step in. Help me. Be God, and I'll be your people. In Jesus' name.